Hello and welcome to the Maxim Institute Book Club. My name is Judy, I'm the Communications Coordinator at Maxim and I'm your host today. I'm joined today by Maxim's Research Manager Kieran Madden and Communications Manager Jeremy Vargo. Hello and welcome to both of you. Hello Judy. Good morning Judy. Today we will be discussing our book for this month, Ross Douthat's 2020 The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success. This book is Douthat's commentary, analysis and critique on society's ideological exhaustion, social decay and spiritual indifference. Within the Western world's context, Douthat discusses how decadence has infected, challenged and formed much of how we live today and how that has been decadently the same for the last two decades. On the podcast, Jeremy, Karen, and I will give our own thoughts on the book, on decadence, and on how parts of what Douthat highlighted are seen in the New Zealand context. To begin with, for those who haven't read the book yet, Douthat outlines decadence by drawing on cultural historian Jacques Bazun's description, which I'll quote. All that is meant by decadence is falling off. It implies in those who live in such a time, no loss of energy or talent or moral sense. On the contrary, it is a very active time, full of deep concern but restless for it sees no clear lines of advance. The forms of art as of life seem exhausted. The stages of development have been run through. Institutions function painfully. Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. Boredom and fatigue are great historical forces. And it will be asked, how does the historian know when decadence sets in? By the open confession of malaise. When people accept futility and the absurd as the normal, the culture is decadent. Ross goes on to say that generally there are four signs of decadence, economic stagnation, the decay of political institutions, intellectual exhaustion and a very low birth rate, all of which must be experienced at a moment of material plenty. So, from that, Jeremy and Karen, how do you understand what decadence is? From what I can tell from Douthat's book, uh, it's less about what we might expect decadence to look like as far as um, a huge feast and uh, the sort of decadent Rome before the fall. Um, He talks more about decadence being a a falling off or something that society has sort of reached its pinnacle and is now slowly decaying it's 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 boring society is sort of exhausted in the social in the political in the cultural um and he also talks about um lowering birth rates and fertility as well i mean i think decadence is the absence of newness he puts a lot of stock into the idea that anti-decadence is is forward movement is kind of the discovery of new things it's the it's fresh it's It's invention creativity imagination yeah, and I think also one of the big things he loves and points to as a sort of the the reason why he sort of argues that we are decadent is that there's a lack of exploration, there's a lack of discovery, there's a lack of I guess for want of a better term domination. He talks about the expansionist kind of colonization movement of empire, that sort of growth, uh, and and I think the word growth is used a lot um, as you know that basically without uh, you know the anti the anti side of decadence is is a growing and that decadence is a is a stagnation a lack of growth that's all those sort of sorts of words around stagnation where you're just sort of sitting in the same thing one of the things that i thought while i was reading it is that for me he doesn't quite I, I I think that decadence is more personal than societal, and I think that the the concept of of a decadent society is kind of like the it's you know society is just kind of a an explosion of what is going on in the hearts and minds of the people living in the society, right? So the society is always just kind of a collection of it, it's an aggregation of the sort of average of what's going on in, in most people's lives or in the majority of people's lives, and so I think that the the thought I had about decadence was that essentially it's pleasure without joy, comfort without joy. It's a cynical comfort. We're all quite happy with the status quo, but we're not that happy. So if you go, I don't, you know, I don't want things to change too much unless they get better. But also I'm not really willing to risk the lot that I have now because in risking it, it might, everything might just get worse. And so there's a fear involved in decadence that I thought was a really interesting through line under it that that we don't we want things to get better but we're too afraid of movement he draws a few allusions to um, Huxley's Brave New World in the sense of um, and and uses another quote of comfortably numb and I think the comfortably numb uh, description fits Douthat's idea of 
decadence. In A Brave New World, the character Savage talks about the reason that there isn't any innovations in art or society or poetry or culture there is because there is no suffering. In that society, it's just about distraction and pleasure. But without suffering, without joy, as you said, there's a sort of a black and white or a grey existence. It's not about reaching the human heights of, of love and flourishing. Um, it's just dull, exhausting, kind of boring. And there's not, a, there's not a risk there. It's comfortable. And I think that comfortable is part of that stagnation. Um, and, uh, but it is a bit of a vicious cycle as well without any sort of risk or without newness, creativity, imagination. We're, we're basically stuck, is his argument the idea that life and, and it's just so interesting that the idea of um, the pursuit of happiness i mean that's in the u.s constitution right in a kind of liberal society where there's no you know you can't sort of confidently say that we have a unifying kind of faith or a unifying moral backbone that that all of us kind of agree to and we've signed up to the only thing that we can kind of say oh that's probably a good thing is essentially happiness and what's interesting about happiness is that if your life is sort of consistently happy or if you're just consistently sitting at the same level of kind of comfort or pleasure the way that it seems that the human heart or the human soul works is that we actually there's boredom that sets in there's a malaise that sets in when everything is the same all the time and it's that sort of I, I got a lot of how he was talking about stagnation and decadence as kind of that sense of you know depression for a person is not constantly feeling overwrought or despairing or sad necessarily depression a lot of the time is the absence of feeling it's the sense that you're insulated from the rest of the world around you and you can't connect to what other people are doing or what other people are feeling you feel disconnected that's a numbness yeah a numbness and so and what's really interesting is that often there is this thing where we we see that in order to feel the high highs we also engage with the low lows when we get that life includes suffering and that we embrace the idea that life is about joy and anguish that it's not nice to go through suffering and it's not nice to have sadness or you know bad things happen but there is also a certain sense when you look at at least in the history of christianity that i've looked into there is a real sense of liturgical catholicism and anglicanism and there's sort of those longer term christian traditions that the mourning and the rejoicing are hand in hand you know like you know mourn with those who mourn rejoice with those who rejoice that is a baked in part of that sort of faith tradition and it recognizes something that's inherent about about the human condition and i think that if we try to remove all mourning we try to remove all the hardship from our lives we also re remove kind of the ability to feel that kind of jump and a leap for joy and that's why what, what got me thinking around the whole decadence is basically pleasure or comfort without joy um, without hope i think Douthat quotes uh, the poet Auden talking about that decadence is broadly characterized by a lack of creativity warmth and hope and i think those you sort of touched on that jeremy about the the lack of hope um which is sort of a it's a it's a current mindedness rather than a sort of future mindedness looking to be hopeful you need to be thinking about the future and 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 looking into the future. One of the interesting aspects, and I may be diverging here, but let's let's do it. Dautha talks about some of the um, questions around fertility and, and replacement rates for a lot of um, countries and makes the argument that as we broadly in the West, with a few exceptions, have fewer children, there's less of a sense of having a stake or investment into the future. And I, I found that a really interesting, interesting reflection um, on that. Pretty much every country in the West has a below replacement rate fertility which is less than you know less than two with the interesting exception of israel which is uh, above three and part of the reason for that is that israel is sort of war-torn in in some in some aspects there's no <laughs> it's very difficult to be comfortable in israel but you also see in israel there's there's a you know there's a deep jewish tradition and culture. What's interesting there is Israel is also a real seedbed of innovation in the West as well. So there's some sort of, I think, doubt that if he is asked what is the least decadent Western nation, he'll revert to Israel, which is interesting. I heard him say in an interview that he he believed that Israel had like the, the history that you were talking about. And then they also have a sense of mission to carry on their long story. And that kind of feeds into the like higher birth rate and it was just a really interesting reflection that he had that they do have a mission to carry on their line 
is that something that we don't have and that we don't want to have? But then in one of his other reflections, he was saying that a lot of Western countries who do have a lower birth rate, they want to have more kids, but then they don't just because of financial things. He was talking about female empowerment and the facts of like the introduction of the, the pill and contraception. I mean, I, I think that that idea behind Israel and the sort of mission that you talk about really plays into the sort of broader idea that I had around narrative that basically when you believe as an individual that you are a member of a society that is living within or living out a grand narrative. Um, and this is what I think he's talking about when he's talking about, you know, uh, narratives of, dis- of discovery or, or, or colonization, right? Of that, that essentially the British empire, like if you were in England and you were kind of like, our country's doing this and we've got to work hard so that we can build the ships that take our explorers out there, or we've got to work hard so that, you know, the dark underbelly of that is we've got to maintain the slaves that enable us to have all of that as well. And so, but, but the, the narrative was that, you know, this is our destiny as a nation in terms of Western civilization, we've gotten to a point where we have seen the end of that discovery and also the end of that narrative because we've seen too much of the dark underbelly of that. One thing that I feel frustrated about with the book is that the Auden quote that you brought up before um, is what fascinates and terrifies us about the Roman Empire is not that it finally went smash, uh, but rather that it managed to last for four centuries without creativity, warmth or hope. Douthat really uses the Roman Empire's kind of whimper out as kind of a, a model for what he thinks a decadent society looks like and, and, and why it's kind of bad. But he never talks about the development of the Roman Empire. Uh, and the idea that the Roman Empire basically went around pillaging and destroying and 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 subjugating, you know, this huge amount of humanity uh, that didn't want to be Roman. They didn't want to have their, like, independence. They didn't want to come under Roman rule. And so there's this idea that, yes, like, we look at the Roman Empire like, oh, wow, huge, you know. But there's a huge amount of destruction that comes with the creation or, you know, just so a few Romans can feel like they have a grand narrative to live out of and they're not decadent. I I don't necessarily know whether that's a better way to live than the current sort of comfort. At the end of the book, Douthat makes a series of scenarios um, such as transhumanism, um, other things of which I know as a um, conservative Catholic writer, he is broadly morally um, against and would call those anti-decadent movements. And so there's a sense that he would say, yes, these things may not be good, but they are not decadent. And, and so that's part of the way that he uses decadence is in a sense of he tries to make it so it's not a, um, a normative um, good or bad thing, although he's sort of arguing that it is bad in a way. That's been part of my confusion as well. Yeah. Um, he really wants to, he's, he's against decadence. And I think, you know, I think I would say I am as well, but there's also an, a notion of the good in there somewhere that you can't just take this idea of decadent or non-decadent. Um, there needs to be a broader notion of, of the good and human flourishing underpinning what he's talking about. One of the biggest examples he uses is space travel. The <laughs> I know that Jeremy has a bone to pick with this, but is that part of the idea of searching for something bigger and something that the whole world like well the space race was based in the middle of the cold war that was something that people could focus on greater than just themselves do you think that some way we've lost that collective good or collective i yeah the the whole space travel thing is quite funny to me he's obviously someone who grew up with that in that kind of flush of excitement about sort of man going into space and and having the capability of being able to do that I would argue that man going into space didn't really accomplish much other than, you know, distracting people. And I think this is one of the things is that you can have grand narratives that are kind of discipline people's minds to feel like they have purpose. But ultimately, if that thing that they're distracting themselves with doesn't end in something good, it's not actually moving towards something that is helpful or, or, or constructive that ultimately people will see see through it. Like I, I don't know if you've seen the last um, season of The Crown, 
Um, but in, in the, there's an episode in which um, Prince Philip, he's very, there's a malaise around, you know, he's, and this is kind of the theme of the whole season with Prince Philip is that he's struggling with the fact that he's the male in the in Buckingham Palace, but he's not the king. He's, he's limited in so many ways. He's the queen's husband, and so he doesn't really get to do anything. And he has this fascination with man landing on the moon. And he's just like, this is the most incredible thing. These men who have landed on the moon, they've, they've gone somewhere no man has gone before like there's this whole he constructs this importance in his head of how amazing it is and he he sort of derails the royal visit from the astronauts to try and get these men in a in a room alone with him so that he can kind of feed off of their purpose and imagination and when he meets them finally he basically meets three military men who have no imagination who are completely disappointing to him because they don't have anything to offer. They've, they've gone to the moon, but it's basically a, a mechanical triumph. It's a triumph of technology and engineering rather than a triumph of the will or of the soul. And it, what's interesting is that it actually points him back into this group of vicars and, and clergymen who've been, who've been kind of burnt out by, by the work of the church and have started meeting together to discuss kind of high-level theology and high-level kind of matters of the soul. And I found that so interesting. And in the same year, I watched um, Ad Astra, which is the movie with Brad Pitt. And I hated the movie Ad Astra because it promised a lot in terms of being a movie about exploration. But in the context of reading The Decadent Society, I thought it was really interesting to think back on. And apologies if you have not watched Ad Astra, there will be spoilers. But basically, Brad Pitt, at the beginning of the movie, his father, who left when he was about nine or 11 years old to explore space. And there's been something that's gone wrong. Brad Pitt's now in his sort of 40s uh, and he gets co-opted into this mission to try to communicate with his father. He finally finds his father and finds out that basically they got to the edge of our solar system and got kind of incontrovertible proof that there is nothing outside of our solar system. There are no more people. There is no more life out there. His father was just determined that he would keep going because he there had to be life out of the, out of the solar system. Even when he was told that there was nothing else out there, he still would not come back to Earth to form a relationship with his own son. The climax of the movie is Brad Pitt realizing, actually, let's stop looking out there. Let's let's look to our relationships. Let's look to what we already have on Earth. Let's look to, you know, our familial relationships. Let's look towards making life here as good as possible. It's part of what I felt reading this is that Douthat a lot of the time is talking about the antidote to a decadent society is to have a new distraction almost, to, to do more space travel, to to discover something more technologically or to have a war. Like <laughs> It's not like he wants a war, but he's like, you know, at least a war would make us not decadent. It would give us a purpose. But I actually, my, you know, naive hope, and it is naive, I know, given where politics is at. But I do think that when we get to a point where we're no longer pushing out for distraction, that actually it's an opportunity for us to stop distracting ourselves from the issues that we actually need to deal with that are present in our societies, like racism, like, you know, inequality, like you're making sure that every person knows what love is. And and this idea that for people who hold an idea of, of what it means to be human, that actually, you know, this decadent society we're confronted with is not necessarily a problem that we need to solve with some external thing, but it is actually an opportunity for us to go, we are comfortable. We don't have a huge amount of uh, external problems that we need to go and fix, although there are external problems. But it's an opportunity to actually, and I, I see this in New Zealand culture, and I'd be interested to know what you think about sort of the, uh, the, uh, the New Zealand context, because he talks about America and Europe a lot. But I think that in New Zealand, we are already seeing a bit of this with the kind of Māori Renaissance and this push to recognizing New Zealand's colonial history more fully and actually talking about what it means to properly reconcile our history with Māori and um, land wars and, and all that. And, and that's an uncomfortable thing. And I think that the opposite of decadence is actually choosing to encounter discomfort. And, and choosing to put ourselves, and, and I think that what's interesting about growth is it always involves stretching, it always involves struggle, and I think that po possibly instead of an external physical struggle, we could actually engage in, a, in an uncomfortable struggle to try to reconcile what it means for us to be different cultures living in the same place. I just wanted to continue on from that. Coming back to the the idea of warmth, um, you talked about us needing to, to some extent, embrace suffering and embrace growth and embrace discomfort. 
I was reflecting this morning about this idea of warmth and that part of what I think Douth is describing is, is a real a cold society. Um, and I think if we think about one of the aspects that he speaks about is technological advances and that one of the big or perhaps the only significant technological advance has been digital, has been the internet, has been new ways of, of, of communicating, um, but also new ways of distracting ourselves and isolating ourselves from one another. And it just seems to me that the, the digital existence is a cold one. And so uh, uh, to reclaim part of what Auden is talking about, part of this, this warmth, it requires significant engagement with with one another and with i mean i think the the prince philip story was a really um opposite one because he does he's he's disheartened he's disenchanted from what he was trying to get a sense of meaning and and um i guess a sense of anti-decadence as well that he was surrounded by the more traditional sense of decadence yeah, and, the, and the, literally the, living in a palace <laughs> in buckingham <laughs> palace but instead he found meaning and depth in being vulnerable with a group of men and perhaps you know perhaps like you say jeremy it's not the solution to to decadence is not a new space race there's potentially something a lot more simple a lot more relational a lot more engaging more deeply with one another and i'm surprised that douthat being a catholic didn't say that like i wonder if he just doesn't have any hope that that we could even get there um even though he talks about the fact that you know that america's previous iterations managed to avoid decadence partly because he says that there were religious revivals um you know throughout several generations yeah. and it's just so interesting to me that he kind of doesn't really expect that in nothing no. he writes he doesn't expect us to have a, a revival of well he paints he paints a sort of religious revival as one of the scenarios that could sort of break the deadlock of decadence but i think he sees the the culture of of the church of american institutions as i think what's he say sclerotic but basically like the hardening of a wound it's hardened it's like a scar you can't do anything about it um so i think he's he paints it as a scenario but rodria talks about the benedict option and that there perhaps has pockets of renewal and different ways of you know anti-decadent ways of living but i think he sees a possibility of a broader sort of cultural renaissance as very unlikely and i mean i think it's, i would share that and the whole the whole book just feels like it's a doom and gloom like there's no hope for any of us getting out of decadence political ideologies have gone and like the religious stagnation is just there's nowhere to move from here it just feels hopeless that's how i ended the book that's a it's a great way to leave it it's interesting because he does part of the sort of innovations uh, of this book is a lot of commentators on the right are very doom and gloom and will say, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're, we've got moral failures, we're going to be punished, the world's going to, you know, civilization as we know it's going to end in a way. Um, but what Douthat is saying is that it's just the more likely scenario is just going to continue. We're just going to sort of limp on. I read someone else or perhaps one of the Douthat interviews saying it's a bit like being on the Titanic in slow motion, but not actually getting to the iceberg ever. It's sort of this inevitable sort of drift towards disaster, but not actually getting there. And, <laughs> and for me, that's almost, you know, a worse existence. Um, and I think he talks about another poem where uh, in the book about waiting, you know, the Romans waiting for the barbarians to come, but they don't come. And the people are kind of just lost and confused and there's a lack of meaning there. And I think that's the kind of thing he's describing, but it's, um, it's both, in one sense, quite hopeless, but for me, it's also inspired some more thoughts of, well, how do we get out of this? Um, what are some imaginative ways? What are some creative ways? What are some ways to bring warmth and hope into society? In the book, Douthat poses a thought experiment from economist Robert Gordon. Given two choices, option A, you're allowed to keep all 2002 electronic technology and you can keep running water in indoor toilets but you can't use anything invented since 2002 option b is that you get everything invented in the past decade but you have to give up running water in indoor toilets which option would either of you choose i hated this i abs i just i fundamentally reject this this question like it's it's kind of 
his his moment where he convinces you he thinks he's convinced us all that like nothing good has happened since 2002 like that we have just had total uh slowdown of advancement invention innovation and that really like everything invented since 2002 is useless or at least not really that great part of the argument I, I i get because you know i remember um i think it was the iphone 5 when it came out in 2013 14 i remember seeing that they had uh apple had their advertising campaign and across the whole window of stores was just this you know monolithic photo of the iphone 5 and it said everything has changed and it was just like no fundamentally it has not changed first of all not everything in the world has changed but not even everything with the iphone has changed there was an ad for a tv that i was watching on the television funnily enough it had the exact same thing last night everything has changed and it's maybe slightly flatter not much has changed yeah and and i think the I think what he's reacting to isn't necessarily a lack of an innovation, but he's reacting to the marketing. I think the marketing has tried to uh, become more grand and, and funnily enough, invite us into a narrative of excitement and change when really it's not that different. But also what he's saying about invention and innovation since 2002 is to reduce it basically to, hey, the iPad wasn't that great. Uh, and actually there's a huge amount of stuff that's happened since 2002, like, 3G and 4G on our phones. The fact that I can go to any city around the world and I can put into Google, I can stand there with a connection to their 4G network, stand there and like basically go, hey, I want to get to this place that's like 40 minutes away across the city. I do not know anything about the city. And Google Maps will tell me, hey, you know, you can take this bus, then get onto this train and go. And I literally can rely on that and then go and do it. I traveled just before Google Maps started doing that. And then about a year after they started doing that, it was an unbelievable innovation. I've also had like one of those moments of just going <gasps> at a piece of technology where like Google Translate has an app where you can just use your phone on your camera to look at a piece of, you know, uh, it, was, it was a Spanish word. And literally the phone changes the word like live to translate it into English. And I was like, this is unbelievable. Like that is so amazing. I mean, I'm not constantly in a dual language environment, but I was like, this is such a cool piece of technology. And the argument he's making is essentially that the only innovations and inventions that have been made are just kind of convenience advancing. But the problem is that he's using as his main thing a convenience innovation. Like running water in a house and toilets in a house doesn't actually do anything new. There were already outhouses. You could already poop on a seat. You just had to walk outside to do it. And so he's saying that the invention of running water is just so convenient that it's that it changes the game. But I would argue that the innovations, some of the innovations that have been made since 2002 they're just building on top of a foundation we already have. And to basically say, well, you know, I'll take out these, these sort of blocks of the foundation that you've taken for granted your entire life um, just to give you the sort of, you know, stuff that we've built on top of that foundation. Well, that's, I don't know. It's, I thought it was a false experiment and I kind of resisted it because it seemed like he was saying, ha ha. And I was like, well, you scratch into the surface and really it's just swapping one convenience for the other. But it's a convenience that we have lived our entire lives with. So we think it's essential. Well, I think it comes down to orders of magnitude as well because I think I'd have more sympathy to Douthat's argument here than what it sounds like you have at the moment, Jeremy, is that yes, a lot of these things are around convenience, um, but there's a there's a distinct difference between uh, the horse and cart. Say in the in the 40s, you've got cars. In the 80s, you've got airplanes, which we've gone from horse and cart, which is just sort of traveling around, to being able to go travel 900 kilometers an hour from country to country. Like that seems like a significant step change versus this sort of incremental, just this is slightly more convenient than opening a map and going for a walk and asking someone. Yes, and, and I completely, I agree with that. And, and part, of, part of my frustration is I think he chose the wrong example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if that, you, that's, if that's you were what to I'm say, well. like you can't, you can no longer have the physics of the internal combustion engine or like the, the sort of steam, like the basically the stuff that gave rise to the industrial revolution. Like there are particular inventions 
inventions like the press that that enabled people to actually read for the first time you know like these are huge society-wide inventions and i note that he sort of you know says 2002 because obviously the internet had fully become part of most people's lives by then and so he's acknowledging that actually the internet you know is this massive society it's a norm shaping and a norm changing environment we are no longer the same people that we were before we had the internet stuff like smartphones and putting putting um, those devices in our hands and having them with us all the time is sort of the same thing as taking the steam engine and putting it into an automobile so that families can now choose to travel what would have taken them a day or two to get there and they can travel there in a couple of hours or you know like i mean the the parish church model was exploded by the idea of the automobile you know the fact that you could now choose to worship in a place where you liked this the preacher you know you liked the priest rather than just having to stay within walking distance of your home like these kinds of inventions yes they're convenience but they also fundamentally shape how we behave as human beings and how we relate to one another and i think that in terms of benefit and making us better people almost definitely the smartphone hasn't done that but you also look at things like social media the fact that we now have cameras on us at all times you know these things have enabled i mean the black lives matter movement the george floyd that video was taken on a camera phone if the people standing there watching that just had to repeat to a a news camera three hours later what they had seen it would not have had the same impact as us all being able to actually see what happened to him um and so i don't i think we can't avoid how these inventions shape us and how massive they are like the arab spring um for all that it hasn't actually ended up accomplishing the fact that you know dictators were toppled um because of twitter and because of the information sharing that governments can no longer control that's a massive that's a massive deal and that i would argue wasn't available in 2002 so anyway this is just me saying i think it's dumb again the the technologies are you know for good and evil they are tools i mean what resonates a lot with me about what Douthat's saying is that the 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 smartphone and sort of the the post 2002 innovations have in large uh, and even more so today, once we start to think about virtual reality and and a lot of the digital innovations are moving away from reality. So if you take the the steam engine or, or planes, they are they are physically moving people from one place to another. You're engaging with reality, whereas a lot of the um, innovations today are, are almost abstracting us from reality. Where we're not meeting face to face, we are communicating from a distance, and we lose a lot from that he talks about this affecting uh, going back to sort of the fertility thing that young people aren't aren't going on dates anymore they're having less sex it's things are changing and it's 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 moving towards that sort of sense of numbness again rather than the reality it's a, it's a disengagement and he talks about that with drugs as well as it that the the drugs the opioids in the states um, marijuana these are numbing drugs these are we're trying to escape from reality that's part of the the challenge of of modern society and a lot of technology has facilitated that as well and so i think yes the innovations but the more that we abstract from the reality and the the joy and the suffering that we were talking about before then we we lose something yeah and i I think also to give uh, a version of this argument it's due another thing he says within the book is talking about um, innovations that actually increase productivity and increase the opportunity for economic growth so he talks about the fact that like uh, you know economic growth particularly in america and europe has stagnated since about this i think the 60s or 70s uh, and a lot of that is because essentially we had these kind of massive uh, he calls it the low you know, america's already picked all the low-hanging fruit you know and the low-hanging fruit was basically let's move from an agrarian economy where people are kind of you know, you know, moving from subsistence farming to mechanized farming, but then also the sort of efficiency gains from machinery have been realized. And that was what drove, and also the world wars um, and kind of the massive amounts of energy that was around creating uh, and, and the technological pushes that war um, necessitates and creates. Those have all been done. And the rising economies are the ones that are sort of going through that process themselves now. And so yeah the technological advances that we're having are advances in communication and entertainment really and they are not productive innovations and so they're not the only the only one that i would say is that basically facetime and zoom you know video conferencing allowed us to be productive uh, you know many of us to be productive during covid and so you know i, I just imagine what 
COVID would have been like if we didn't have the internet and we didn't have you know video calling that was as reliable as it as it was. Uh, it would have impacted our economy a lot more. This book was written before COVID, and in an interview that I was listening to a few days ago, he was saying that the coronavirus is doing a stress test on what our decadent society looks like. Do you guys have any comments on that, or how do you think COVID-19 can take us out of decadence or reshape our society? COVID was interesting in the sense that I think normally a sort of not just a national crisis, but a global crisis is something that can sort of shake us out of our comfortableness. And I think COVID did to an extent, but the the unique thing with COVID is it wasn't necessarily a, a time where we could physically come together and band together um, in, in the way that we normally would, say, after a, a natural disaster such as an earthquake. It made some things, even <laughs> some decadent aspects of society worse in the sense that you can just actually check out of society entirely. You, got, you had an excuse to do so. I know I took a few opportunities for that. But at the same time, the unique thing with COVID was that almost others were the enemy um, and it was difficult to unite, um, to unite together and come together. I, I think there's two examples that are on display. I think that New Zealand has done a p- pretty good example of being non-decadent and, and of allowing COVID to actually be a creative force to, you know, full credit to the cultural leadership of um, of our Prime Minister during that time. I think with the right leadership, COVID actually gave us an opportunity to think about, I was going for walks around my neighbourhood, you know, I, I felt more connected to the fact that I was living in a community. I, you know, saw the bears in the window, you know, they, they, I mean, and these things are all small but the fact that they were kind of our collective response I guess because they happened in New Zealand we can kind of just go oh well of course you know but when you look at what's happening in America and you look at the cultural impact of the response to COVID and the fact that it wasn't well led by by America's leadership it you know that basically it was used first of all as kind of COVID's a conspiracy you know it's not real uh we don't have to take it seriously and then oh oh we might have to take it seriously okay let's lock down but oh we're not really that stoked about it whatever uh and then you basically have it 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 became politicized you know whether you're wearing a mask is kind of was was a a sign of whether or not you were a sort of a you know a cuck who was willing to let the government bully you into doing what or let the experts or the elite tell you what to do um i unfortunately have engaged in a number of kind of facebook discussions with with people who've basically been like well you know the the evidence is in wearing a mask doesn't stop you from getting covid and it's like yeah but the evidence is in wearing a mask stops you from inadvertently passing COVID on so actually a joint societal collective response living within a narrative that it's all of our responsibility to care for each other I think that was seen quite strongly in New Zealand amongst the majority of us that we were like okay this is a big deal for some people some people will die if they get COVID I probably won't but I think it's worth and there was a lot of memes flying around like, oh, this is the most wonderful thing and this is the biggest collective act of love. And at the time I was like, oh my gosh, okay, get over it. It's just something we're doing. But the further away I get from it, I kind of see that. And especially when you see in America, the response of people being like, you can't make me wear a mask just to, I don't have COVID and I'm not, you know, th- that selfishness is actually, I think, a huge sign of decadence because it's basically saying wearing a mask would be a little bit uncomfortable for me and my life is about being comfortable and about dictating the terms of how I live and living into a, a bigger narrative around what's good for humanity, what's good for all of us and what's good for my neighbor and being able to think outside of myself and having, you know, having a, a vision for that. I think that's anti-decadent. The selfishness and the kind of my rights you can't make me, that strikes me as being particularly decadent. And I think we're seeing the results of that playing out in America and in the massive increase and spike in their cases uh, and and I guess the unapologetic nature of people going, oh well, freedom, and and it's a kind of freedom that doesn't actually produce good ends. You know, there's different kinds of freedom out there. You know, there's different kinds of freedom, and I think freedom that looks to a a, a good outcome or a good end, freedom that has a good telos is is worth fighting for. But freedom that is basically just an individualistic, uh, libertarian freedom where you can't make me is inherently childish and stupid. I agree. As Matthew Arnold said, freedom is a good horse to ride, but you need to ride it somewhere. 
and I think that's what you're getting at, Jeremy, is that it's a freedom for something, a freedom um, rather than just a freedom from others telling me what to do. Um, but I, I mean, I think the New Zealand experience of COVID also showed that our, our constitution is one that is broadly anti-decadent in being able to respond quite quickly, um, especially when you compare it to the, the United States, who is sort of the, the definition of, of institution that's full of deadlock and you can't actually do anything. I mean, I definitely take for granted that there are risks and we need the checks and balances on power. Um, I doubt that would probably say that the Chinese government was very non-decadent in their response to COVID as well. Um, and that goes again back to that point of decadence, not always good, not always bad. But we showed that as a nation that we could be quite effective, institutionally fairly robust through that process. Um, but I mean, some of the wheels are falling off a bit now. So doubt that speaks uh, into movies quite a bit. Jeremy, you mentioned the Brad Pitt movie. He uses the example of Star Wars, saying that the first three that they created, like chronologically in the 70s and 80s, were completely unique to the screen at the time. But then he says that any following sequel or trilogy had such high hopes of being globally successful, just turned out to be remakes and just repetition of uh, what was already created um, as a unique movie. Do you think cinema and culture has changed over the last decade or is Douthat's commentary on repetition correct. I have a lot of sympathy for Douthat's argument here in this. I, I don't think it's his. I think he borrows off another another author, but basically looking at sort of the cultural differences, uh, if, if you take art or film uh, or dance from, say, the, the 40s and compare it to the 80s, there's a significant difference there. It's distinct. Um, and even break that down between the 40s from the 60s, from the 60s to the 80s, they're distinct periods. You could identify those sort of cultural artifacts um, by that by the time frame um, but is there much of a difference between the 80s and the 2000s is there much of a difference between the 2000s and the 2020s culturally and I'd say uh, I'd agree that it has that it has tapered off and that there is a significant amount of repetition in our in our culture there's not a sense of yes there are people doing innovative creative things at the margins but if we take the broader Western culture, I think it is broadly defined by repetition. Um, and you see people like, I mean, he sort of name checks the Marvel films and you, you see Martin Scorsese, who I think has done a lot of innovative stuff like with Irishman and with the film Silence as well recently, got into a lot of trouble calling the Marvel films, uh, well, critiquing that they weren't cinema that they weren't art, basically because they, they were aren't theme, doing... They were theme parks. They were theme parks. They're bread and circuses that they're not doing anything new they're just they're just following a formula and one of the worst parts is that a lot of these are based on algorithms and just giving people what we want um and you know it raises questions is is this what we want do we just want the same thing do we just want nostalgia um and it's it's quite concerning like i feel throughout this chapter he was just continuously hating on our culture and especially with that example of the the 20 year slots of what fashion looks like what architecture looks like what movies look like it's all very distinctive if you go back but the last 20 years he keeps saying that it's just so decadent and everything has been the same of like stagnation and repetition but surely some good has come out of the last 20 years he argues that you can have a non-decadent society that is characterized by bad films or bad you know they're, they're sort of the normative thing but the thing that he is critical about and what defines decadence is the repetition it's the nothing you know, like we right at the start of the podcast we we're talking about well it's a lack of freshness a lack of creativity imagination a lack of dealing with um, or exploring some of the deeper themes of, of what it means to be human that's kind of missing here <laughs> one of the deep ironies of the fact that he's describing and i think quite accurately describing the the repetition of culture and art in our society. And, and what he's referring to is, is essentially popular culture, like yeah, popular yeah, movies right. and popular books and popular art, because essentially those are the ones that get most people's attention. The idea that we're just churning remakes and doing sequels and returning to the same properties over and over again, I find it reflective of the fact that we have stopped assuming a cultural canon so post-war, there was this real pushback, and I think it probably was going on um, pre-war as well, but there was this idea that Western civilization and Western culture had a canon 
of the greats that you basically needed to do service to the greats. You needed to read them all. You needed to know them before you were kind of able to start creating your own work. So you had things like the Odyssey, the Iliad. You had the great works of, of English literature. You had the great, um, you know, there were, there were some American greats in there as well. They were necessarily confined. You know, there was Shakespeare. There was the great poets um, that you would study and you would, you would they were recognized like these are superlative works of art. And that basically if you were going to go and make art, you needed to sort of know these and understand their form and their substance before you were kind of worth your salt, you know, before you could be trusted to make great art. And and what that what happens there is that you basically you play into the archetypes that are within our culture, the the great stories that kind of shape our imaginations as we're growing up. And and as we grow up with the story with the fairy tales that we grow up with, you know, I'm I'm now you know looking to oh what fairy tales am I going to tell my daughter as I begin reading stories to her, and I reach for the ones that I loved when I was a kid. And so this is how culture passes on. The, the issue is that basically we, we got to a point with culture where we wanted to do away with it all. Like the, the sort of 50s, um, you know, there was, a, there was a movement within academia and then uh, more broadly within the 60s, 70s of going, you know what, we don't need to be bound to these old dead white men. You know, we don't need to be bound to these sort of dead relics of, of a culture that failed us by delivering us two world wars. Uh, we need to have the freedom because creativity is all around us and, and each one of us has a story and each one of us has an authentic voice and we need to be unafraid of giving rise and giving giving voice to that you know authentic self stop me if you have heard this in every disney movie for the last 20 30 years and so this narrative is now you know basically everyone is going well i can tell a unique story or i can make a unique song and there are greats that are coming out of that you know but what's interesting is that the great songwriters that were in the 60s and 70s, they were still the ones who were formed in their education by the sort of classical education. And now it seems like we, we're feeding off of the, the creativity of the sort of generation that were making films and, and art in the 60s, 70s and 80s and a little bit of the 90s. And we're basically then just churning that over and I really wonder if it's because we don't have cultural archetypes anymore. So the cultural archetypes that we have are the movies and the books that we read when we were kids. And, and so there's no collective uh, language that is of this kind of substance that, is, that, that warrants further you know, going over. So you can go over a piece of Shakespeare, you can remake a Shakespeare into Clueless, or you can remake a Shakespeare play into 10 Things I Had About You. And it is an identifiable piece of cinema that stands on its own as a great you know fun story even though the bones of it are taken from a Shakespeare play it finds new form because it's a good enough story but it's not a remake you know it's not a, and it's not a sequel necessarily and so I do wonder if there's a there's a quality question around the archetypes we now have and the reason we don't like it is because essentially that Back to the Future isn't a deep enough story to warrant rehashing again and again and again there's not deep enough truths in that art to actually feed us when the next generation tries to mine that content and so it becomes nostalgia rather than art yeah I was going to say that is does that have something to do with nostalgia and looking back at the good old days with rose-tinted glasses but actually the context of where they got their greatness from we no longer trust that history of the odyssey or those classic things but we no longer are looking towards anything new. So we're just stuck living in this present moment of repetition. Well, and the irony of it is that we think that so much of the narrative around how we create art is about newness. It's like we need new, authentic voices. We don't just want to rely on the old. But there's something, authenticity isn't a guarantee of quality. Authenticity is not a guarantee of beauty. And so in art, in you know culture that that we look to that and and again what we're talking about is popular culture we're talking about culture that speaks to the mass because we need shared experiences we need shared cultural touchstones in order to have the kind of societal narrative that will actually help us to band together that will help us to you know actually understand one another whether or not we're we share the same kind of identity markers that we we actually have these shared stories that mean that we understand each other and so i just make a play for the fact that beauty is real it's a real thing that we actually recognize whether or not we want to and that just because something is 
just because a voice is new and just because a voice is authentic to the person themselves doesn't mean that they are worth listening to. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I totally agree with that. Like I was like in my reflections on this chapter, it feels like we're culturally lost for fashion. For example, if you spend any time in Wellington, people were looking for being authentic and being different but then you look at their fashion and the way that they live and it feels like very 70s and 80s but then in other pockets of New Zealand I don't know people just all look the same so it's like are we just stuck in this loop of either trying to recreate a history that we don't fully understand or like understand how they were formed in the 70s or 80s are we just stuck or lost or I don't know I mean I think lost is a probably a good a good description. I think it's if, if we throw away all of tradition and all of the things, the good things that have been passed on that we can inherit and we're told that we can find ourselves and, and create everything anew and be authentic, we are still unmoored. And I think this is <laughs> perhaps going back to some of the, the earlier um, themes. A lot of young people today are lost as well, like in, in their lives, in vocations, in, in career. What am I supposed to do? I've been told I can do everything. Um, but just like this the sort of the the end of the space race and sort of coming back to earth with a thud and saying oh it wasn't all that it cracked up to be or i couldn't be this there's this real sort of realization of reality that i think is pushing a lot of the uh, movements towards um, numbing whether it's numbing drugs or numbing distractions because the reality can be really hard and we but we haven't been uh, i would argue that that people and young people today haven't been given the, the tools or haven't been given the opportunities to be shaped and be prepared and respond to reality as it is uh, and the highs and lows and the struggles as we said before and I just want to again coming back to the broader cultural question one of the reasons why we do get um, these remakes and sequels is because they are they're not risky um, and back in the day cinema and art was there was a risk you took a risk on a particular director on a particular story and it was either going to be great or potentially a failure but now everything is focus grouped and tested and there are algorithms and the movies that are made are safe and they're comfortable and it comes back to this idea of decadence it's just comfortable there's no risk there's no suffering but there's no greatness as well and that's that's i think what what douthat's trying to get here is it this perhaps it's misguided in the in the sort of space realm as far as what we're looking for we're looking for something more and there's perhaps those words something more than there's something more than this there's a restlessness that i think he's putting his finger on that i think it's really important that we try to grasp and grapple with Mm. and i do just want to say to temper what i said before like there, there is genius out there there is great art being made and it's probably being made in the same sorts of uh amounts that you know, great art was being made in previous generations. You know, like we probably have the same number of geniuses as previous generations had. It's just that now with the, you know, huge availability of, um, uh, you know, the, the everyone has a camera, everyone, you know, so everyone's a photographer. And so actually sifting in the idea, and also I think that plays into this idea that, you know, everyone's authentic voices, you know, and everyone is a talent, you know, everyone has the same equal opportunity to be, you know, to have their voice, you know, and, and, and we have these sorts of senses that there needs to be an equity to uh, availability to all these things. And, and I, I don't really know how you bring a curatorial voice that does still provide equity because, at some point, someone's got to decide, well, this is art and this is not, or this is worthy of a, a larger group of people looking at. Um, but that's one of the biggest things that we are short of now, is that we are short of uh, essentially trusted curatorial voices because we're so time poor, you can't listen to everyone's EP. And so I think... Where the that, algorithms come in there. Yeah, well, and that's the problem is that algorithms now create, you know, there's a Spotify sound. You know, there's there's a sound that you know people know is comforting it's one of those things where music that is that people are willing to to just have on in the background while they do their every day that's the music that makes money on spotify the because rise of you the get chill well yeah you get your streams up because and and so people are not necessarily going to make challenging or confronting music because that's not something you just put on in the background but i know that there are still i mean there are movies that have brought me to tears um that i've seen in the last two years you know, they're not necessarily blockbuster movies um 
but they're, they're still being made and there is still art that's being made that is beautiful. There's still architecture that is not just, uh, you know, riffing off of and replicating, you know, beautiful old Romanesque or um, Palladian architecture. There's, there is new architecture being made that is truly beautiful. Uh, it's just that, you know, there's so much of it out there that's sifting through it to find it. You know, there's still genius. And so I, I, I wouldn't be so you know I'm, I'm not depressed i'm not sort of you know despairing at the fact that there's nothing good out there i just think that the our culture needs to reclaim the ability to call things beautiful or to call things good and to say actually that's not ultimately genius is recognized kind of more after its time anyway because it will survive and you can see why doubt that sort of um obscures the question of good art and bad art and just talks about repetition because it's a difficult ground to yeah so to wrap up this conversation, what has this book left you with? What did you learn? Did you even enjoy it? Yes, Karen, as the person who chose this book for the book club, yes. did you even enjoy it? Guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I did enjoy it and I think it has left me with, I think as I said before, a sense of despair, but also um, uh, a bit of a an inspiration to to work out and think about and, and chat with others around how can we get the warmth, the creativity and the hope that Auden talks about in do the best we can to restore or redeem some of the more decadent aspects of, of our society. I enjoyed it. Um, I think there were certainly aspects and some of the scenarios that he, that he speaks about um, that, were, that were less persuasive and he's, he's, he's very good at, at sort of making a prognosis of, of the problem, but um, less adept at painting future scenarios of what that could look like. But I think that's, that's fair. It's a, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to predict the future, which is what he's trying to do. But I think some of his prognosis, um, particularly around the sort of this, this notion of, of us as a society, broadly in the West being comfortably numb, um, really challenging. And thinking about how, for me and for our society, how to engage more deeply and richly and in a more human way to move beyond um, distractions, to move beyond abstractions and disconnections. And and I think, as we said before, uh, Jeremy has said, it's surprising he hasn't spoken about actually just we need to build warmer relationships and more vulnerable relationships. And, and that sort of social aspect of life, um, I think it's a real challenge to, to go there. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I feel like Douthat's frustration is that, I mean, he, he talks about decadence not necessarily being, you know, or, or the reverse of decadence not necessarily being good or bad in and of itself. It's more kind of a state. But I do think that decadence, yeah, so decadence for a society can be comfortable and can mean a lack of violence or, you know, and, and those things are yeah. good. I think that on a society level, decadence can be fine. I think that Douthat's real frustration and the reason why we sort of get a sense of despair from him is that he knows that decadence is not good for the soul. That that there is that decadence is a a state for a person to be in. As a state for a person to be in, decadence is destructive and, and ultimately it is it, it carves away or it gnaws away at what is good about humanity. Um, and so I think that personal decadence and, and that's what the main thing I'm taking away from this is that actually it's an it's an encouragement to go, well, I might not be able to fix society. I might not know, you know, where the world is going uh, and, and how this can be solved on a societal level. But fundamentally, it is a conviction and it is a, a moment of going, you know, how am I making sure that I am not overwhelmed by cynicism, that I am still, like you say, remaining hopeful, that I am tending to, and, you know, our last book was The Road to Character, that I'm tending to my character because I think that someone who is actually seeking to grow their character and become a person of character is not decadent because that growth that is required is painful to achieve you know like actually being like we said you know being vulnerable and being able to talk about our weaknesses openly and actually say i need to improve that that's the opposite of decadence and so i think that it's interesting the through line from road to character into the decadent society i almost wonder if we had done the books the other way around that the road to character would have almost been a conversation about how we personally move away from decadence ourselves and i think that that's a it's a really cool yeah, it's a really cool moment to realize that these books are in conversation with each other for me. And I think that, yeah, reading this, I was kind of like, oh, God, <laughs> these, 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 
you know, big society societal problems are kind of unknowable, you know, how to how they came about necessarily, you know, because it's all a big blend of a whole bunch of different Im- impetuses. Fundamentally for me going away from this, I'm like, how can I be someone who is constantly growing? How can I be, and not growing in the sort of Adam one kind of perspective, but growing in that sense of going, how can I be someone who is full of joy, who who looks to, who doesn't avoid suffering just for the sake of avoiding suffering, but actually, you know, how do I lean into those human moments? Um, and how do I make myself ready if my life is to lead to a point where I'm called to lead or called to speak into something that's bigger than just me and my family? How can I be ready to, to take on that responsibility in the hopes that I might be able to have a positive impact? And I, I think that that, is the the surest way to walk away from kind of a, a sense of despair at like, what can I really change? Because I think that's the danger of reading a book like this is going like, oh gosh, you know, like I can't really do anything. And it's just like, well, yes, you can. You can actually be the kind of person who speaks against whatever this decadence actually is. Wow. That was a great reflection. I actually loved that. Because <laughs> I would be the person that would be like, man, this is just it's so big. big. It's like this wall that you're just confronted with and there's no hooks to climb into. But that's like, yeah, that's so beautiful. And I hadn't seen that connection between that and the way that we form ourselves, but also are, are like formed and shaped by our community and those around us. But it's a shame that Ross didn't really go there. To all of you listening along, thank you so much for joining us for this month's Book Club podcast. If you want to read along with us and have the opportunity to submit questions to add to the podcast discussion, be sure to email bookclub at maxim.org.nz and we'll sign you up. There you'll get notifications about the next book we'll be diving into, including next month where we'll write up a reading guide to prompt questions and further thinking into the books that we're reading together. From all of us here at Maxim, we thank you for participating and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Matewa.